We're starting a brand new series today. This is going to be a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. I just want to throw it out there as we kind of get started this morning. But I, I kind of want to uh, do what we always do before we get into the scriptures. We're going to jump right in this morning and talk about this. This is a, a maybe a most interesting book to look at. We'll talk about why. Maybe you'll know why when we talk through this this very unique text in the Bible. But we're going to do what we always do before we get dig into God's Word. And we just did it. We just prayed over Marissa and the missionaries who are serving Kenya and all over the world, our friends and our, our family. Um, but we're going to also pray that God would impart wisdom. We've, we've done this several times today in the worship service. We've invited him to, to be with us. It's not because we don't think that he's here. We believe he is here. But that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear his teaching among us. We really believe that. I believe that as one who gets a chance to study God's Word and then proclaim God's word that it's not some unique gift I have, but it's God teaching me and us through the Holy Spirit. So we're going to pray like we always do that God would teach and that we would learn and God needs to be on both sides of that equation. He has to teach and we have to help, have his help learning. So uh, pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the chance we have now to come into your word and to learn from you. Uh, we join our brothers and sisters all over the world as they seek you out for wisdom and understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us where we are. I pray for every person who's gathered here at Family Bible this morning, that you've drawn near for a purpose, that they would have um, minds that are fixed on you. I mean, their thoughts would be directed toward you. And I know, Father, the cares of this world can seem overwhelming to us. They can, we can just come through the doors and we're just totally wrung out from our week or from what we've been going through. I just pray for our sake and for your glory that we could just listen to you, that we might be changed by you, that we might come into relationship with you or, or, or draw deeper in our relationship with you, the very real present God every day of our lives. And we love you so much. Uh, this work is yours to do. We cannot do it apart from you. We have no wisdom of our own, Father, so would you teach us today? We love you so much. We thank you for Jesus who died on the cross. We might be free of our sins, and we might learn and know you forever. And uh, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells in us richly. We thank you, Father, for this time. Do your work through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Ecclesiastes, if, you, if you're if not familiar with it, it's going to be in the Old Testament. I'm going to invite you, and again, I don't have very many slides today, but I'm going to, I think the first slide we might have, yeah, Ecclesiastes 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there is one on the end of the chair rows next to you. It's going to be page 461 in those Bibles. Um, I would also encourage you that if you don't have a Bible of your own, grab, chat with me after service. We would love to get you a Bible that you can take and study and read. We believe that God is revealing himself in very plain ways to us. And, uh, and so we want you to have that opportunity to just have a Bible in your hands at all times if you want one. So chat with me if you want to do that. So Ecclesiastes, uh, we're going to kind of walk through it. I, I don't know how we're going to break this up yet. It's a very unique book of the Bible. But I want to just, as we open it, I wanna, we're going to stop almost immediately right on something and talk about what this book is about, who wrote the book, and why, why it matters, maybe why is it so unique in, in the whole Bible. Matter of fact, I was recently talking to a friend of mine at coffee, and I, and I was just, just kind of talking about some unexpected, matter of fact, I was giving this person the Bible, and, I was, and they were like, I don't really read the Bible. And I go, you know, you might be surprised about what's in here. And in the conversation I was having with them, I said, for example, the book of Ecclesiastes, I don't know why it's in there, <laughs> you know, because if you've read it, it's an interesting book. You can read it about an hour, hour and a half, depending on how fast you read. And I would encourage you to read it as we, as we go through it in the series. Uh, but it's very unique. So I want to just kind of jump in here and read through it. 
This is the way it starts. The words of the teacher, son of David in Jerusalem. And I'm just going to stop there and say, well, okay, already we are hearing something about the book and why it's in the Bible. Why is it written, right? Why is it recorded? And it says, it's, it says uh, the words of the teacher. And my immediate question is, well, who's the teacher, right? I don't know if your translation has, but my translation has a teacher capitalized T, like teacher, you know, like a, a person, right? But here's a little bit of a history of the book of Ecclesiastes in case you're wondering, Okay, first of all, that most people believe it was written by Solomon. Uh, that would be King Solomon, ruler of Israel, right, God's people. He, he wrote this book as one of three books that he wrote in his life that are recorded in the Bible. Does anyone know what they are? You know what the three books of Solomon are? Yeah, Song of Solomon, which is, which is interesting, a, 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 a pretty salacious story about love, romantic love. Some people have said, well, it's about God's love for us, but man, right? I mean, if you're not encouraged about the gifts God has given us in each other, you should read the Song of Solomon. Something else you might not be, find, you may be uh, surprised to find in the Bible. What other book is written? Proverbs. I heard somebody say it. Yeah, Proverbs, the book of wisdom, right? The book of wisdom, some people read, I think, isn't it the Proverbs? They read, there's 31. They read like one per day every month. They read a proverb and kind of study that way. I, I, I was just thinking, Dave Ramsey says, you can get a master's degree in finance by reading the book of Proverbs if you ever want to do that. So that's his, uh, his line on that. So he wrote, Solomon is credited with writing Proverbs, which is right before Ecclesiastes. You'll probably see it on the page before you're at. And then Ecclesiastes right? And then the book Song of Solomon. Interesting. So what we know about him already is he's concerned with wisdom, recording wisdom. He's concerned with practical matters like love and relationships and how those things work. And we're going to find out maybe why he's uniquely qualified to write and teach about these things as well. Now here's some interesting things about Solomon's history though that you might not connect. And I want to just take a minute uh, by way of introduction to connect some things for all of us so we can remember who Solomon is. Solomon, it says the teacher is the son of David. That's King David, right? The man after God's own heart. But what's, what's striking and what you may not know and why I hope you actually read your Bibles because there's, a little, there's some controversy involved is, is Solomon was born to David by Bathsheba. I don't know if you guys knew that. Bathsheba, if you remember from the text, Bathsheba is the woman that David saw bathing from his rooftop and had an affair with. And not only did he have an affair with Bathsheba while her husband was at war, he called her to his quarters, but then had her husband killed. And you might go, what? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's in the Bible. Get, get this. Because of David's unfaithfulness, Bathsheba was pregnant. Because of David's unfaithfulness to his servant and to God who he serves, God took that child. Something else you might not know. David prayed and prayed and fasted and prayed, but the child did not live. So interesting that King Solomon, who we will find out is the wisest man to ever live, was the next born son to Bathsheba. God's redeeming story. And so we have now David and Bathsheba have Solomon and Solomon becomes king. He becomes king after his father David gives up the throne. 
a couple other things. The, the book is probably written around 1000 BC, right? Um, that's like backwards math. It's like 971 is some of the math on this stuff, right? So if you're into that, that's about when it was written. And Solomon was ruling over Israel before Israel was divided. Here's something else that's important to realize about Solomon's life. It did not go off without a hitch. You know, it's kind of funny because Solomon has this idea of, I'm going to be greater than my dad, who is King David. I'm going to do more than my dad has done, that is King David. But Solomon's own path is wrought with struggle and difficulty and, dare I say it, sin. He just doesn't always do the right thing, Solomon he was the last one to rule over Israel as the united Israel before it was split into two kingdoms. And the part of the reason it was split after is because he took foreign wives. And this divided the house of God. Because God said you ought not to do those things. As a matter of fact, there's a pretty good thought out there that Solomon, having married in multiple cultures, maybe for uh, political reasons, you know, to build alliances and stuff, began to build temples to other gods. You know, he's famous for building the temple. But he built other temples for other gods because he had other wives. And that became a great offense to God himself. I just want to mention all this to you so you understand that coming into this, we don't have some kind of like, you know, glassy-eyed view of who Solomon is. And, 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 but it's not going to matter because the book is filled with wisdom about how life is. Matter of fact, it might be filled with despair because of how life is, which is interesting. Not something we often think about. I want to share with you a couple of uh, passages about Solomon's life. And the first, I'm just going to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. I want to read for you 1 Kings uh, chapter 3, verse 5. And we're just going to read down. I think I got 5 to 14. So just a few verses. I want you to understand how Solomon comes to uh, be king and then what happens after he is king. It says, At Gibeon, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, Ask for anything you want me to give you. So Solomon answered like this. You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my, out my duties. Your servant is here amongst the people you have chosen, a great people, so numerous, too numerous to count or to number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now listen to what happens. So he, he kind of says, God, you have blessed my dad and you've blessed me, you know, and, uh, but I, am, I don't know how to, to, to lead, to rule. Give me, and this is what he asked for. If you didn't catch it. Give me a discerning heart. That's what he asked for. Give, give me a heart that can distinguish, what does it say? Right from wrong. That's what I want most. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or for wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but you've asked for discernment in the administration of justice, I will do what you've asked. 
I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you before, nor will there ever be anyone like you again. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for. I will give you both riches and honor so that your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. Wow. And if you walk in my ways, and if you obey my statutes and my commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. That's a, that's a pretty good exchange with God. <laughs> I just want to say, if God's going to give you a test, and you want to give the right answer, Solomon seems to got it. <laughs> you know, Give me a discerning heart, Lord. And then God says, because you asked me, I'm going to give you everything. I want you to hear some of the words. There will be no king on earth equivalent to you. And now many of us, we go, well, that's because Solomon and Israel is a big deal. But many historical scholars think it's kind of a small program at this point, you know? Like, I mean, there's been, you know, God's on Israel's side. Don't mistake that. But it's an up-and-coming venture here under King Solomon's rule. And he says, you are going to be blessed beyond all measure. More wealth and honor than you can ever imagine because you've asked for the right thing a discerning heart. There's a story about the child being brought to Solomon. We know that story, and he, he, he kind of discerns through wisdom whose child it is. There, one person's lying, one person's trying to save their child, and, and he does that well. But I want to read one more spot in here. This is 1 Kings 4, uh, 29. This is what, I just want to get you the, the biblical endorsement of who Solomon is before we get into the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. That's a, that's a lot. Did you hear it? All the men of the east and all the wisdom found in Egypt. I want you to think about historic Egypt, how much they had accomplished and done. He was a wiser man than any other man, including Ethan the Erazite, wiser than Hermon, Calhol, Darda, sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He, they're basically, you don't know who those people are, right? Isn't that kind of funny? Like, we don't know who those people are now, but they must have been somebody back in the day to get mentioned by name in the text. He's wiser than that dude you think's the wisest dude you know. Right? There's some, there's some testimony about that. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life, listen to it now, from the cedar of, of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his great wisdom. You know what he sounds like to me? I mean, it's more than this, but a bit of a scientist, right? He had knowledge of trees and birds and, and plant life, and he understood how the world worked. Not just discerning heart, wisdom, good judgment with the people, but he was an observer of things. I think it's funny because, and this is why this is maybe uh, such a relevant book for our time. It's always, the Bible's always relevant, but the book of Ecclesiastes, it could have been written now by any of the great philosophers, if you will. You know, we, we may all consider ourselves to be great philosophers, in fact. You may even hear some things in Ecclesiastes, you're like, oh, I've thought that, but I've never wanted to say that, because we've lacked courage, maybe, to say it. 
But Solomon had, had set his mind to doing these things, to understanding, and he had asked God for wisdom. One more, one more cultural, one more piece I want to share with him, because you might go, okay, so great. Young-ish person asked for wisdom. Dad's king, nervous. That's a good prayer. Help me with discerning heart. Um, king David was about 70 years old when he died. That's pretty remarkably similar to now, if you don't know that. Um, so the estimates on, based on David and Bathsheba and Bathsheba losing the first child and then having Solomon second and all these things, uh, or having Solomon next, as you say, this is how, how old do you think he'd have been when he's, when he's talking to God in that dream? Estimates say he's under 30. I want you to think about that for a minute. Your dad, who's the wisest king that your people have ever known, has ruled. You've just seen him ruling. And he has made mistakes, but he's been a repentant believer. He has, he's wrote most of the Psalms. I mean, most of the Psalms are written by your dad. You know, think about that for a minute. I mean, these are big shoes to fill. And you're under 30. And you've been set in that seat. Lead. How do you do it? He's married. So probably over 20. So here's the range. He's 20s. He's in his 20s. Young leader. Young man. And I say that because I want to mention this. The book of Ecclesiastes seems to be targeted to young people. As a matter of fact, you might say Proverbs and the book of Solomon <laughs> seem to be targeted to young people who may not have lived long enough to understand what someone who's lived to the ripe old age has learned. And so all of a sudden, this, this book is written uh, from a perspective of reflecting on life, of a life pursuit, and we're going to hear that as we in, get into the text, of someone who is pursuing the things that God is revealing in this life. I said last, I'm sorry, one more thing I want to share with you. This really is, and then we're going to jump into... Um, Ecclesiastes 1. So what's the purpose of the book? The book has a self-defined purpose, okay, and um, I just want to point that out as we get in. We're going to come back to this probably a few times in the series. But as two has a target audience, younger people, right, trying to impart wisdom to you that you might understand, that we might understand what he has gone through and all that God's revealed. But then he says this, and this is in 12. I have it up on the screens, I think. Yeah. Um, this is in Ecclesiastes 12, 11, And this is what it says. The words of the wise are like goads, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd, right? This is, this is what wisdom is good for. And I want to unpack it just for a second. This is what Ecclesiastes is meant to do, two things at the same time. One thing is it's meant to kind of poke us with a stick to not get stuck. That's the intent, because it's a book of wisdom, and he says, you know, I'm going to write what I know, and it's a book of wisdom, and then he says, it's like a goat. A goat is like, you know, aggravating somebody until they move. <laughs> you know, maybe like a cattle prod. You ever seen a cattle prod? If you've not seen one, you can go buy one at Royal King. It's terrifying. You can buy one at Royal King, <laughs> and then you can poke people with them. It's, it's terrifying that you can do that, but you can. It, 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 gets, it gets the herd moving. It, it, there's a tendency that we have to walk and then just stop. We just get overwhelmed. Ecclesiastes might come off as an overwhelming book. But the intent of the wisdom is to say, move, 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 move. Get past it. 
And then the second you'll see it says is it's like firmly embedded nails. Another way you could interpret that is pegs in a wall. Everything's got its spot. You ever have a, uh, I have a pegboard over my tool bench that there's nothing on. <laughs> but some of you probably have them with the little racks where you hang your tools. And my, my grandfather had outlines around his and everything went in its spot. But you can count on it. You knew where it was supposed to be. That's what this book of wisdom is for. It's for two parts. One is to move us along. And the second thing is that we might have things to, to, to hold on to that we can say that is true. It's an unflinching look at life. And I, I think it's reasonable because um, I think it's reasonable to start this study that way or this, this series that way because uh, it can be overwhelming even now to read the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've not read it, you probably go, what is he talking about, right? I mean, I hope I've piqued enough curiosity that you want to read it. Uh, but it, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. All right. So the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, and by the way, that would be uh, David, king in Jerusalem, and the son, the teacher, is the king in Jerusalem. Here's how he starts. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or perhaps your translation may read like this. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the teacher. Everything is vanity. I can't. You know, they always say it's like the first words you say that matter the most. Starting a book like that. <laughs> Everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then he asks the question in verse 3, what does man gain from all his labor which he toils under the sun? This becomes the formational question if you think of it that way. What is the point of all the work? That's going to be a question he's going to ask over and over and try to unpack. Matter of fact, I would, I would say, you know, where I'm at, there's about seven places where he stops and tries to give an answer. He tries. He just says, for all the consideration, uh, that's about all I can say work is good for. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. What, what does it mean that Solomon, uh, the wisest man to ever live, <laughs> says, it's meaningless. It's vanity. And then, let's, you know, anytime things are repeated in the Bible, you got to go, okay, maybe one off, you kind of go, oh, I, we can get past that. But when you say things over and over again, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Here, here's a funny bit. He'll come back to that theme. As a matter of fact, I think the word vanity or meaningless is mentioned like 27 times in 12 chapters. He doesn't want you to forget what he's after here. He doesn't want you to forget his primary question, which is what? What does it gain a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What's it about? It's kind of funny because I don't think... I have to preach very hard in our current culture, and I mean that global culture, um, but it's specifically Western culture to convince you that this life is meaningless. You might go, what? That, that what? <laughs> um, there are many, many worldly philosophies that tell you exactly the same thing. We just don't want to admit it. 
that life is utterly meaningless. Now, I, I can sense, you know, among us, I mean, we got some believers here and we're like, wait, 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 man. It's not meaningless, right? There's a great meaning to life. I mean, why do we care so much about life if it's meaningless? Why do we care so much about unborn babies if it's meaningless? Why do we care so much about old people if it's meaningless? Why do we care so much about our brothers and sisters or our, our family, our kids, our parents if it's meaningless? Why? Because we don't believe that it's ultimately meaningless. Did you notice what Solomon asked in his question? What does it gain a man all the toil that he spends under the sun? He's asking a very specific question. He's not, I don't believe, asking an ultimate question, which if you read this book as if he's asking an ultimate question, you can get really overwhelmed and go, what? The wisest man said this is all meaningless. That's not what he says. And if you've read the book before, and I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't, when you get to chapter 12, he kind of wraps it up and says, there are some important things. But ultimately, now listen to me, the things of this life are futile. <laughs> under the sun. Under the sun. Do you know what's under the sun? Everything you've ever known of this life, under the sun. Um, it's a very earthly seeking after of purpose. Does that make sense? It's a very earthbound. Nothing is greater. Let me tell you how I see this happening. People say, there is no God. I had a friend of mine I was talking to, and they said, I came to the conclusion there is no God in my life is so much better. And I'm like, really, how? Tell me how that works out for you. And they said, well, today has been good, and, you know, I, I, I just had, I don't have to worry about anybody anymore. I don't have to please everybody anymore. I don't have to try to do anything different anymore because every day, you know, I'm, I'm satisfied with what I've done for that day. But ultimately, they wouldn't walk their life out to the point to when it's over. So what? <laughs> so what? You had a good Tuesday. At the end, it doesn't matter. So what that you're nice to people, at the end it doesn't matter. There's a term for this in philosophy called nihilism or nihilism, depending on how you enunciate. And it means that there's no meaning in anything. Here's one you may have heard of before. Postmodern thought. Deconstructionist thought. Take it all apart till there's nothing left. And go, look, there's nothing. There's nothing. And then we are so proud of ourselves. Look how wise we are. There's nothing. <laughs> 3,000 years ago they wrote it down for us. But we figured it out now, right? There's nothing. No. Solomon, I don't think, I think he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase after the wisdom that God's given me. I'm going to see, I want to see the purpose of life. But he starts out with his findings. Everything is meaningless. All is meaningless. What does it gain a man? for all his labor. I mean, I want you to think. Now, here's the real difficult part. If you take this text seriously, you will have to reevaluate your life choices. You will. Because if you think about it, so many of us just assume what's important in life. You know what's important in life? Um, being in a good school system. You know what's important in life? Getting a good job. You know what's important in life? Wearing the coolest clothes. 
You know what's important in life? Living a healthy lifestyle. Uh, it's important to be a good parent. Um, it's important to be a, a, a good family member. It's, it's, it's super important that you be a good employee. It's important that you be the boss. It's important that you become president of the United States. That's important. And we chase and we pursue all the things of this life. And we never stop and go, what good is it? What, what value is added to this? All of our toils under the sun. <laughs> Check it out. All right, we're going to press forward. So he's going to go like global. I mean, he's going to go like big time here into what he finds this to be true of. Verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises yet again. The wind blows to the south, and then it turns back to the north, and round and round the winds go, ever returning on their course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never filled. To the place where the streams come from, there, are, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one person can say. What? <laughs> they just go and go and go. I want you to hear what he's saying, right? Like, generations come and go, and the earth doesn't change. Generations rise and fall, and the earth doesn't change. He says that, right? The sun goes around the earth. That's what we know now. And I know you might go, well, now, back in the day, they thought that the, yeah, I, I mean, we go around the sun. They used to think the sun goes around the earth. But you know what I'm saying? There's this cyclical pattern to everything. And Solomon's watching it. I want you to understand that about him. He's observing life. And he's going, what difference does it make? What difference? As a matter of fact, it might be easy to argue that Solomon has the privilege of luxury of a life that he could even stand back and observe it. He's born to a king. He has plenty of free time. Sounds a lot like some of us. <laughs> to just sit around and go, what's this all about? <laughs> and he gets overwhelmed with his insignificance. The sun rises and sets and hurries back to where it rises again. The wind blows in circles. You ever seen a jet stream? You ever seen a weatherman? You've seen a weatherman, right? That's a job. Anyway, I mean, we all watch the weatherman, right? But you ever notice like how, oh, the wind's blowing this way now. Oh, the wind's blowing that way. There's a higher pressure system and a low pressure system. And there's this, and I, I actually try to explain it to my wife sometimes because she loves the weather. And so I'll try to explain to her what uh, the weatherman said because it makes me sound smart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, there's going to be a high pressure system coming out of the north uh, today. And, but, you know, it's just this fundamental blowing of the wind. I mean, it's just this movement of, and it doesn't stop. They'll always have a job. Or the, all the streams are flowing to the sea, but the sea's never filled. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. The water just goes back. It's like this whole cycle you learn about in, the, what, seventh grade? Fifth grade now? I don't know. Kids are so smart. It goes right back. But then he says this, man. This is where it gets, like, all these things are wearisome. More than one can say. He's just exhausted from this reality. And then he says this. And this is, um, I, don't, I say crazy sometimes, wild or whatever. He says this. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear ever has enough hearing. There's an insatiableness about our observation. If we watch long enough, something different's going to happen. But it's not. 
but we keep watching. There's this insatiable nature that, that we have in us, right? And I'm, I'm trying to avoid, like, that God put in us, but, but there's this insatiable thing that God, to watch, to see, to observe, to be honest, and to go, that's what I actually see happening. Entire, the whole scientific um, approach is built on it, and we are, uh, you know, completely immersed in scientific thinking, which there's nothing wrong with that. I want to be clear about that too. I'm not afraid of any observational science whatsoever because this is the gift of God, but we, we can see and we can watch and this is, it's never satisfying. We just want a little, you know what, God? I just need a little more information. That's what I need. Like, are you like me in that way? God, I love you, but I just need a little more information. As a matter of fact, lest you think that this is all just Solomon on some kind of like uh, super, super, um, you know, downer, uh, whatever, <laughs> you know, philo- philosophical trip. Um, Jesus said the same things in his ministry, didn't he? He, he? he would go, look at the lilies of the field. That's what he would talk about, you know what I mean? He would use these very practical, can you not see? Do you not watch the seasons that are happening around you? But Solomon is limiting his focus to things that are under the sun, and he's not finding anything that's satisfying. Listen to verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. Listen to this word. Listen to this word. There is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> nothing new under the sun. And you might go, okay, great. Nothing new under the sun. What's the big deal? Because you know what we fall for all the time? New and improved. I mean, how many people, when you see something new and improved, you go, I got to have one of those. We just got a new and improved thing in our house. We just got one. I'm not even joking. We got a new and improved thing. And Chris keeps telling me how awesome the new and improved thing is. And I've been reading Ecclesiastes. (laughs) And I go, for now, (laughs) you don't understand how awesome it is. It's doing new things we could never do before. Think with me for a minute. All we've ever done as a species is combined and recombine things that are already here in a new configuration. There's literally nothing new. Nothing. Our greatest fantasy is that we create something new, but it's been here all the time. We're like children with Legos. We put them together in a new configuration. We're like, look, we made it. And God goes, okay, sure you did. <laughs> look what we did. Yeah, I, there's more in the earth. Keep digging. <laughs> You haven't got to the really good blocks yet. <laughs> and we're so impressed. We're, good job. We did it. There's nothing new. I want to ask, and I'm not against new things. Like, I'm not saying don't go in and buy that new thing, but can we just not get so hyped about the new thing? Can we not be triggered so easily? Like, I have to, there's a thing that, um, there's a thing, a bit of a meme, I don't know if it's a meme or whatever, um, people put on comments and they see things that are awesome, they'll say, take my money, they'll throw money at people, take my money, you know, it's like, it's so cool, I have to have it right now. This is what marketing is built on, it's something new. The wisest man to ever live says, there's nothing new under the sun. And you go, Solomon didn't live here. Yeah, well, he would look at it and go, meh, Right? You should have seen the place I lived when I grew up. You're impressed with your flat panel? Come on. What it says? Is there anything which one can say, look, it's something new? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. There's nothing. Nothing new. 
It was already here long ago. It was here long before our time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, there is, now here, then he gets into this. There's no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to be born, yet to come, will not be remembered by those who come after them. There's a tendency to forget. There's a tendency to forget. And we do it so quickly. We, we learn these great life lessons, and then we just forget the importance of the life lesson. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like you go through that crisis thing, or you have that moment in your life, and you're just like so desperate. And maybe, maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's just a life thing, you know, like, like not that that's not a spiritual thing, but, you know, you, you go through this crisis, and you're like, if you get me through this, you know, I'm going to be always different and stuff. And then you get through that, and you're like, wow, that was awesome. And maybe for a week, you're like, that was cool. And then you're like, wait, what? What happened back then? I'm not sure that even happened. And then we forget all we've come through. Here's what he's saying. There's not even a legacy. Did you look around in life and, and watch who's pursuing legacy? There's this whole movement of like, leave a legacy. Make sure you have a lasting impact. Put your name on a building. What is this? Aspirations that we have as humanity is to not be forgotten. I worked my whole life for this. Put my name on a building so you won't forget me. And then a while later, somebody goes, who's that guy? That name doesn't matter anymore. Let's put a new name on the building. And a new guy goes, yes! No, that guy's gone. <laughs> he says something here. Young people. You go, all right. Yeah? I'll try to remember my elders and stuff. You're going to be forgotten. The people who come after you will not remember you. That's what Solomon is saying. We have a brand new baby. The generations that are coming will not be remembered by the ones who've come before no small thing, by the way, that the primary prayer of the Israelite people is remember. <laughs> Shema. Remember. Because we have a tendency to forget so much, including God Himself. There's no remembrance. All right, so check it out. Here's some more. This is all by way of introduction for him in this book. I, as the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. This is Solomon. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. I want you to see he has two primary, you know, kind of goals. He wants to devote himself to study and to explore. That's what he's going to do. He's going to learn and read and listen and talk. And, have kind of, and he's going to look and watch and examine and put it in a jar. He's going to do those two things at the same time. Again, it sounds like a very scientific or analytical approach to the world. He's going to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on men, he says. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I told you it's going to be a repeating theme. It's a, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. You can't prove a negative, right? The things that you, you don't know. So he's just pursuing it all the time and looking for it. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom and much knowledge. So he's content with all he's done in his life. And then I applied myself. So he's already got wisdom. And by the way, I mean, this, this is after having lived his life. We don't know exactly when the book was written. Um, 
by Solomon at what point? There's some people who would say, well, he wrote it when he was like away from God. That's why it's so despairing, right? But then others go, well, maybe if he wrote it later in life, it shows he came back to God at the end of his life, right? He realized his folly and he repented of his sins. We don't have a recording of that unless it's here in Ecclesiastes. But at some point, he sets on this journey to discover more. So he says, I had gained much wisdom and much knowledge, and I experienced much. And then I applied myself to the understanding of that wisdom and also of mad the madness and the folly. And I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. Two things, an explore and a study. And then what is he going to look at? Now, this might not make a lot of sense off the bat. I'm going to apply myself to understand wisdom, understand madness, and understand folly or foolishness. These are his main things, right? The things that are, what do he pray for? God, would you show me right from wrong? So he's going to apply himself to studying, um, to understanding uh, wisdom as it is, madness, which is craziness as it is in the world, and foolishness. But then I learned that even this is a chasing after the wind. Even that pursuit that he's under is a chasing after the wind. And then he says these words, and we ought to uh, give our attention. This is what he says. Because with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. There's this idea that we have I said it myself, right? We just want a little more. God, just, just show us a little more and we'll be satisfied. There's a story in the, in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are in this beautiful place with God, right? But what are they tempted by? Knowledge and power. That's what they're tempted by. If you just take that one thing, you'll finally have it. And, and it's easy for us to go, I wouldn't have done that, but... Come on. That one thing. I know we're in perfection, but that one thing. And that psalm reiterates that here. He says, because with much wisdom comes great sorrow. The more you know, the more painful it becomes. The more knowledge you gain, the more grief we have in our lives. The New Testament says something like this. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up, Right? We, we are so convinced, and I just want to sit on this for today, we are so convinced that if we only knew a little more, or we're convinced that now we know more than we've ever known before, and I believe that this book of Ecclesiastes is going to kind of unpack it. Now, if you think today, I encourage you to read it, but if you think today, he just doubles down throughout this entire book. <laughs> He's like foot on the gas the whole time. He never lets up. And so if you're not in for an uncomfortable ride, you're not going to be in for this because he's going to go right to the truth of what he sees as one of the wealthiest and wisest men to ever live. Um, I want to pray for us, and I pray that God would continue to take us on this journey where he's having us, but I want to pray for some reflection today, right, in our lives. I mean, <laughs> we don't want to artificially undo anything, um, but we also want to be available to God if he wants to undo things in our life, things that we go, absolutely, that's what's important to me. We want to let God undo those things in our life if they ultimately are not important in our life. And then we want to uh, be kind of people who are reformed by Scripture to understand rightly what life is truly about. See, there's one, and I'll say this, there's one striking difference between Solomon's assessment of the world and the one of Jesus. The Solomon's assessment 
especially until we get to the end of the book, is kind of hopeless. He kind of pats together some things and says, ah, this might be good enough for all your work, but it's probably not, you know. Try to enjoy it. Uh, Jesus comes and teaches the same thing that Solomon does. But he says, but there's hope beyond what you can hope, possibly imagine. Way more to life than you think there is. And that's the journey you want to be on. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of your scriptures today. We thank you for uh, just the way that you, uh, you deconstruct us. Like you unpack our foolishness, even in this generation. Uh, you challenge us to think deeply and to examine closely. Um, to not, that we would not lead thoughtless lives. But we would lead open lives that are willing to have conversations that are difficult and to respond when we're corrected. Father, I do pray so much for uh, this generation of believers. This book has stood the test of time, but I pray that us, this generation of believers, everyone in the room, would be formed and transformed and reformed by your text. That your Holy Spirit would work in our lives, that we would see something greater in this life than all that it has to offer. And then, Father, for the abiding relationship that we have with you and for the constant call we have home toward you know, greater things than we could hope for, imagine. I pray a prayer of thanks. That's an implantation that you have given us in our soul that we're made for more than this. Help us to be faithful to that. Help us to be obedient to you. And we will continue to follow you and learn and prosper as you teach and guide. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.